good morning. Peace be with you. He is risen. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you for joining us as today we celebrate, you know, the day above all other days in which we celebrate that the tomb is empty and that Jesus Christ is alive. And the truth of the resurrection, we are convinced, changes everything. It gives us hope for the future. It gives us hope beyond the grave. Because when Jesus walked out of the tomb, he put a promise before all of us that death does not have the final say for any of us. John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. See, the resurrection, it gives us an unshakable hope for the future, but it also gives us great hope for today. There is power from Jesus' resurrection that can be unleashed in our lives today, in particular, a power to push out our fears and our anxieties so that we might live with greater confidence and boldness on this earth. Now, as I look at our country and the, the place where we're, we're in right now, the state we're in, we're, you know, one of the most prosperous nations in the history of the universe. Uh, we're relatively safe. We're safer than any other generation before us. But we live in an age of anxiety. And we as a people are afraid. And fears control our lives. They shape our lives in a lot of negative ways. I recently came across the Chapman Survey of American Fears, and it's this annual survey that's done that looks at 79 different categories of fear, ranging from natural disaster to crime to war to illness to death. They basically, this university wants to figure out, all right, we know America's got a big fear problem and a big anxiety problem, but what exactly is everyone afraid of? So 79 different areas. At the very bottom, the, the thing that we fear the least, only 3% of Americans have a you know, very measurable fear. Uh, 3% is dogs, so that's pretty good. 97% of us. Uh, next on the list of kind of the lower fears at 5% is zombies, uh, which <laughs> kind of feel like we need to do better educating in our s schools. Right above that was 7%, uh, and it was clowns, which was on the list as well. And, and so as long as you're in single digits, and even into some of the double digit, like 15%, 20%, uh, I mean, that's where like snakes come and uh, spiders and things like that. But once you get above 20%, you start to get to, to things that, you know, I think a lot of us share. 20% of people are afraid or very afraid of public speaking, 28% of Americans right now, or sorry, in 2017, 28%, one out of four, essentially, were afraid of random mass shootings. And I'm really interested to see how that number changes between last year and this year. 43% of us fear a terrorist attack. 44% of us live with a, a very measurable fear of an economic collapse in America. 48% of us fear North Korea using a nuclear bomb. 48% of us fear World War III, 50% of us, it's half of us, we fear not having enough money for the future. 55% of us fear the state of American healthcare and will we actually get the healthcare that we need when we need it? And you go up and then you get to the very top, number one fear, the most common fear in America that measurably affects people's life. 
And you'll never guess what it is because I never guessed. I couldn't have guessed what it was. The number one fear, 75% of Americans, three out of four of us, are either afraid or very afraid of corrupt government officials. Think about it. Less than half of us are afraid of North Korea using a nuclear bomb on us, but three out of four of us are afraid of corrupt government officials. We're more afraid of what we're going to do to ourselves than what other people are going to do to us. Let me ask you, what are you afraid of? What's keeping you up at night? What fears and worries are you bringing in with you this morning? Maybe it was one of the things listed, maybe it's something else. Maybe you're nearing retirement and the stock market's volatility is making you really nervous. Maybe you're afraid you're not gonna have a job in a couple of weeks. Maybe you fear losing your spouse, spouse to divorce or death. Maybe your fear is your kid's safety and their future. Maybe it's a terminal illness. We all have fear and anxiety operating in our life. And it's a powerful negative force in our life. Fear and anxiety can close us off from other people. It can disrupt our sleep patterns, our health. It can drive us to addictions, be they drugs or alcohol or other things. Like they're very, very powerful and this morning, what I want to hold before you is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ speaks to the greatest fears and anxieties we have, not just about the future and what happens when we die, but about today. That the resurrection is filled with promises for us today. And so from Romans 8, we're going to look at three resurrection truths that I want to hold before you. And I'm going to do a little spoiler alert. All three truths, they're all really good news. This sermon this morning, it's all good news. Some of you, you haven't been in church in a long time. And when you think about going to church, you think, I already feel bad enough. If I go to church, it's just a boatload of bad news. No bad news here. It's all really good news. And it's all really good news right from the pages of the scriptures. So the three truths. Number one, God is for us. Number two, no one can condemn us. And number three, Nothing shall separate us. God is for us. No one can condemn us. Nothing will separate us. If you're not familiar with the Bible or you're just a little familiar with it, the book of Romans is the Apostle Paul's greatest work. It's his theological masterpiece, his magnum opus. It's what he put all this time and energy into. And in the first eight chapters of Romans, what Paul does is he essentially lays out the meaning of the gospel. He walks through who Jesus is, why he came, why it matters, and what, what promises it holds for us in the future. And like a lot of Paul's writings, it's pretty dense and thick, and at times it can be a little confusing or hard to read because he has run-on sentences that last for half a page. And so you get into it, it's easy. I'm just trying to say, if you've ever been lost in the book of Romans, that's okay. Like a lot of people get lost there because it's really thick and it's really dense. But what we're looking at today, I cherry-picked. I fast-forwarded to the best part. That's what I did. Get all the way to the end of eight, and what Paul does, he says, all right, I want to boil everything down that I've said. I've just spent thousands of words making my argument. Now I want to boil it down and tell you what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about, what the meaning of his life, death, and resurrection is. And words are even failing him. He doesn't know how to say it again in a fresh way, and so he puts it in the form of a question. What then shall we say 
in response to this, in response to everything I've written. If God is for us, who can be against us? So Paul says, I want to sum it all up. What does the gospel teach us? It teaches that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if this, this sentiment, God is for us, were coming from the page of like chicken soup for the soul, uh, or a lot of different, you know, authors or writers, it was kind of a sentimental thought thrown out there, it would be easy to disregard it. If this came from someone who said, you know, I like to think of God like this. I'd like to think of God like a flower that just makes you feel happy. It would be one thing. But this is coming from Paul. And Paul lived a very hard life. And Paul, he's making this argument that God is for us, not on emotions or on what he wants, but on historic reality, historical facts. Because he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then he makes his case. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If you're following Paul's argument, he's saying, God is for us. You want to know why we can know that? Because he didn't even spare giving up his son to save us. He gave his son. And if he gave his son, won't he give us everything else? Like some of you here, you're like, yeah, I believe Jesus died for me. But you think that somehow God's not going to provide for you. And Paul's like, are you crazy? You think God's willing to sacrifice his son and then all of a sudden he's going to get stingy? Like, I don't know if we got the resources. I don't know if we got, got that in the bank. Paul is trying to make this very, very clear for us. God, if you are in Christ, God is abundantly for you and your good. And this truth, while we can nod along at an instinctual, almost gut level, I think it's one of the hardest truths for most Christians to really believe. They hear, we hear, God is for us, and we put an asterisk at the end of it, right? Like, it's true, and you're doing this in your mind right now. Well, that's, yeah, I guess that's true, but there's a lot of fine print that needs to go underneath it. And I'm saying, no, there's not. God is for us, period, full stop. That's what the meaning of Christ's life, death, and resurrection says. Some of you are thinking, well, what about my sin? Is God for my sin? No, of course he's not for your sin. You're probably not for your sin most of the time. Is God for my self-righteousness? No, but you most of the time aren't for it either. Well, how could God be for me and not be for those things? Well, you know how. If you're a parent or you've just been in a relationship with another human being, you know that you can be for someone and not be for everything in their life. I am for my kids always. I am never against them, except for if I have a prolonged period of time off of work and I spend all day with them for like two weeks and then stuff rises up in me. That's not good. But as a whole, like, I am all for my kids and I am never against my kids, always. Sometimes I give them ice cream. Sometimes I give them presents. Sometimes I give them correction and discipline. And I'm just as much for them when I'm giving them ice cream as I'm giving them discipline and correction. But I'm always for them. And when I think about the American church and how much power we seem to lack and confidence and courage, I wonder how much of it's rooted in the fact that most of us aren't really certain of this one. Most of us think, yeah, I think God likes me. He doesn't really like me, but he has to like me because of Jesus. These are the things that go through our minds. 
What Paul says here is God is for us. Now, Satan, he tries to invert and subvert this truth all the time. Satan's greatest lie is his oldest lie, which is that God is not for you. So if you live with that, that God is not for us, God is, God is out to get all of us, that's not coming from God, it's coming from Satan. When God created the world in Genesis 1 and 2, do you remember how the story begins? He creates a glorious paradise. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden together. They're naked and unashamed, which I don't know if any of us can relate to. Naked and unashamed in the garden. And then God gave some commands. You remember what the commands are? Be fruitful, multiply, rule over the earth, and subdue it. It's kind of like at their wedding, they're getting ready to go on their honeymoon, and God says, you two have fun. Here are the keys to everything. And then Satan rolls in. He says, oh, God, yeah, I've heard about God. Isn't he the one who told you you couldn't eat from any of these trees? Which, of course, is not what God said. Like God said you can eat from any of them except for one. God gave one no in a world filled with yes. But what he was doing is he was attacking God's character. He was saying, no, no, no. He doesn't want you... He's not looking out for your good. He's not looking out for your joy. He doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want you to become smart. He's out to get you. He's the cosmic party pooper, the one who always reigns on the parade. God is not for you. God is against you. And it's a lie from the pits of hell. God is for his people. He's always been for his people. And sadly, often in the church, we perpetuate Satan's lie We let the bad news of sin, which is a very real thing, but we let the bad news of it overshadow the good news that God's for his people. He's actively working for our good. Here's why this is so critical. In life, we have events, and then we interpret those events. That's what life pretty much is. Things happen, stuff happens, and then we try to figure out what what it means and what we can learn from it. And for a lot of us, I think that we think 90% of life is what happens to us, and then the interpretation is kind of 10%. I think it's the reverse. I think life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you understand it. And I think one of the reasons the church is so afraid, the church is so weak at times and lacks power is because bad stuff happens and we don't know what to do with it. Or maybe there is a cumulative effect of bad things coming into your life, and you're wondering, What does this mean? And if you don't know God is for you, your heart will probably take it to God is against you. Think about it. When's the last time something bad happened in your life? Did you wonder, I wonder if this is God paying me back? I wonder if this is God punishing me? I wonder if God's really secretly out to get me. We'll get to it in a second. God doesn't punish you if you're in Christ. Punish Christ for you. God doesn't delight in making anyone squirm. If you know God is for you, it gives you tremendous peace in the present, in the here and now, because you can say, I don't know why this is happening, and I feel like this happens a lot for me. I don't know why this is happening, but it's not because God is against me. God is for us. Not only is God for us, number two, no one can condemn us. Knowing God's for us helps us deal with our fears and anxieties in the present, but then we have to ask, what about our past? What about the bad stuff that we've done? What about the bad stuff that that continues to arise in our life, the skeletons in our closets? 
And if we're honest, most of us are still putting skeletons in closets, aren't we? I mean, I think sometimes in the church we talk about sin like it's something we've done in the past tense, not something we do in the present tense. But what about that? How do we, how do we, how do we live with kind of that dissonance of we know who we're supposed to be, but we're not that person? I'll tell you, if you don't know what to do with those feelings, like that, that what do I do with this, this gap between what God calls me to be and what I am? You're going to be dealing with feelings of condemnation, guilt, and shame all of the time. And when I look at the church, so often that's what I see. I see people whose lives are dominated by guilt and shame and feelings of condemnation. By God's grace, we have the Apostle Paul and Paul, right before he wrote Romans 8, you know what he wrote? Romans 7. Uh, and in Romans 7, you know what he talks about in Romans 7? He talks about the civil war of the soul. Romans 7, it's one of the most comforting chapters, at least for me. Paul says, I have all these things that I want to do, and I have all these things that I want to stop doing. Anyone relate to that? All right, I'm going to start doing these things, and I'm going to stop doing these things. And Paul says, but when I try to do it, I end up doing these things a whole lot and all the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things I hate, I do. I don't know about you, that offered a ton of comfort for me when I first read it. Hey, this guy, I, can, I like Paul. That's what I feel like a lot of the time. And if you tried to go on a diet, all right, here's all the food I'm going to eat. Here's all the food I'm not going to eat, right? And Paul, he wrestled with this, and he asked this question, who will rescue me? Because he felt so condemned. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the very next verse, he says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See what Paul's saying here? He's saying we might feel guilt and conviction for our sin, and sometimes Conviction is a very good thing from the Spirit. But we should never feel condemnation if we're in Christ. And if we don't need to bear the condemnation, that means we don't need to bear the shame. Paul, he's making an argument in verse 33 when he says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. The argument Paul's making in that verse is that there's actually only one person who has the right and the authority to condemn us for our sin. It's not other people. It's not Satan. It's not even our own hearts. There's only one person who has the authority to condemn us, and that's God. And God chose, instead of condemning us, to condemn his son. It's not because we don't deserve it. It's because Jesus took our place. Now, this is really, really good news. It's really good news because it means that if your life is dominated by feelings of shame and embarrassment and I never measure up, what am I going to do with all this stuff in my past? It means none of that has to define you. It also means because there's no condemnation that your lost job, your illness, your marital struggle, your rebellious child, your unwanted life situation, none of those things are God paying you back for your sin or trying to get even with you. He's not trying to settle a score. There's no condemnation. Not only is there no condemnation, there's also intercession. Let me explain what I mean by that. At Easter, we celebrate that the tomb is empty and that he has risen. 
But I think for a lot of Christians, when you ask, but where is Jesus right now? They're not as, like, I don't know. I just know the tomb's empty. Let me tell you, the tomb being empty is great. Love empty tombs. I'm all for them. But the tomb being empty means nothing without a risen Christ who's actually doing something. And what Paul tells us in this text is that Christ has been raised so that he might intercede for us. Verse 34, Paul says, Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Right now, at this very moment, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, serving as our advocate. First John says, interceding for us. Paul says here, and we also read that in Romans or Hebrews 7. That Jesus, like, where is Jesus right now? Ever thought that question? Where is he right now? I'll tell you where he is. He's with the Father and he's interceding and advocating for you. Now, you can misinterpret that and think, well, God the Father is like really angry. He's like, I can't put up with these people anymore. Over and over again, they do this. And Jesus is like, please, I know, I know, I know, but forgive them one more time. And the Father's like, fine, one more time. That's not what's happening. Jesus is for us. God the Son is for us. God the Father is for us too. He was the one who planned our salvation. He was the one who so loved the world that he sent his son into the world. So it's not Jesus trying to coerce the father into doing something he doesn't want to do. I think what's happening is it's a real-time application. Every time we sin, every time we fail, it's in real time. Jesus saying, my sacrifice covered that. And the father's smiling and saying, I know. Not smiling at the sin, but smiling at our salvation smiling at the perfect work that they accomplished together for us. There is no condemnation. Some of you, you desperately need to hear this. What's really got you buried right now, what's really, really weighing you down is not just what you did, but it's the guilt and the shame that you're still carrying. It's that feeling of being condemned. I want to tell you, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There might be consequences. You need to, I need to say this really clearly. Some people say, well, I thought there's no condemnation. Of course there's not condemnation. But if you break the law, you're going to go to jail. There's consequences. Like if you lie all the time to people and it comes out, yeah, people aren't going to trust you as much. The good news of the gospel, though, is that Jesus doesn't even leave you to deal with the consequences of you on your own. He's not like the parent who said, you made the mess. If you want to come and have dinner with us, you got to fix it all. Jesus is like the parent who says, I'll help you clean up before dinner. He doesn't leave us to deal with the consequences of on our own. He walks alongside of us in them, reminding us that there's no condemnation. Last thing I want to say about the intercession of Jesus is... Hebrews 7 says, Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. Then we also get strong indications in the book of Hebrews that Jesus prays for us. And I just wonder, thinking about fear and thinking about power in the church, what kind of power would you have in your life if you knew Jesus were praying for you? Because he is. 
your struggle against sin, what kind of power would you find if you knew Jesus was praying for you? Hebrews indicates he prays for us when we're in times of need. And so when we're, all we know how to do is cry out help, it says Jesus prays, he intercedes. He prays for us when we're feeling guilty, when the accusations of the enemy come at us. I think he also prays for us to press on when we want to throw in the towel because life's just so hard. He prays for our endurance and our perseverance. How different would your life be if you knew every day Jesus is praying for you? God is for us. No one can condemn us. Lastly, nothing will separate us. The last question Paul asks, it's about security. It's about the future. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, I'm not saying Paul had an anxiety disorder, but as someone who has an anxiety disorder, I feel like he does because this is the kind of question you ask if you've got an anxiety disorder. You lay out all this great stuff, and it's like, all right, what's going to screw this up? Like, that's the way anxiety manifests in my life is when bad stuff happens, I think that's normal. When good stuff happens, I think, all right, how long is this going to last before something comes and screws it all up? And that's the question Paul's asking. He's saying, God's for us. No one can condemn us. And he's like, wait, what's going to separate us? What's going to come along and cause me to lose my grip on him or even more importantly, him to lose his grip on me? And Paul lists a number of things that are waiting for us in life. A number of things that are waiting for us if we walk in conviction and faithfulness to Jesus. He says, what shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or a hardship? So these are just all the problems and trials and pressures of life. Shall persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now, Paul, he's kind of summing it all up. Like, this is what we go through in life. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, lack, lacking, nakedness, shame, coldness, being alone, danger, sword, death. Will any of these things separate us? And for Paul, these, none of these things are an abstraction. I, Paul, he put this list together most likely by thinking, what's been the hardest part of my last month? And he just started writing down some words. Because if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, again, if you took these words, the promises of Romans 8, you, you rip them out of context and you put them on a sign, it'd be easy to laugh at them and say, yeah, that might be fun to believe. This is coming from Paul. Five times he received 39 lashes. Five times. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once people picked up stones and threw them at him until they thought he was dead. Like Paul knows hardship and trouble. He knows how brutal and ugly life can be. He's not speaking theoretically in verse 36 when he quotes Psalm 44 where he says, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's autobiographical for Paul. But the big question he's asking, he's not saying, God, can you make it so nothing ever hurts and life's not hard? The big question he's asking is, all of this awful stuff that happens in life because we live in a fallen world and our world is filled with evil and a lot of people are very, very evil, all of it, will any of it separate us? Because if it separates us, it's a real threat. If it can't separate us, then, man, it doesn't even have real teeth. And he responds 
with an emphatic no way when he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, Paul here, it's interesting. He doesn't say that we are conquerors. He doesn't say, yeah, we're gonna prevail. He doesn't say we're just going to prevail over these things. He says we're going to super prevail, hyper prevail, overwhelmingly prevail. We're not just conquerors, we're more than conquerors. And I've wrestled, what does that mean? And here's what I think it means. I think what Paul means when he says we're more than conquerors, a conqueror is someone who triumphs over their enemy. Someone who's more than a conqueror not only triumphs over the enemy, but actually takes the evil the enemy was using against them and turns it for good. Someone who's more than a conqueror can take the worst thing that life throws at you and not just make it through it, but to use it for good and grow from it. The promise of the resurrection isn't just the promise of victory over sin, suffering, and death. The promise of the resurrection is that the worst things that life can throw at us are working for our good. And Paul made that point just a couple verses earlier in Romans 8, 28. So here's what I want you to see. Some of you are going through hard stuff. Some of you, you're about to go through hard things and you're not prepared. You have no clue. You're going to get a phone call in the next week, month, year that's going to change your life forever. And I just want you to know, life is hard. Life can be brutal, but nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Even beyond that, even the brutality and hardness, Jesus can use it for your good. What kind of power would we have as a people if we knew that even the worst stuff, which was awful, God was using for our good? You know, in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul tells of a hard time in his life and ministry. He described it like this. He said, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. If you're a person here who hasn't spent much time in the Bible and you feel like the Bible doesn't speak to real life, think again. Look at what Paul just said there. I was under great pressure. Couldn't endure it. He says, we despaired even of life. I'm not sure what that means. Other than, I don't know if I want to keep going. This is kind of a, Put yourself there. It's a very powerful and sad statement. And I think whatever any of us is going through, it's not worse than what Paul's describing here. I'm not saying what you're going through is not horrible or awful, but it's not worse. You think, well, what good could come from that? How do you be more than conqueror in that? And Paul tells us in the very next verse. He says, but this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He says, you want to see the positive that came from that horrible season? I quit relying on myself and I started to rely on the one who has power over death. I quit trying to live in my own skill set and strength and I started looking to the one who raises people back to life. When we think of the American church, we think of the power that we don't have. Is this not the cause of it? We spend our days looking to ourselves. We plan it all out. We've got our whole lives planned. We've got all of our securities and our insurance. We've got everything lined up. And that's why when bad things come, we're like, whoa, whoa, this was not part of the plan. But hopefully, you know, I've got my security blanket or my safety net or all the other things I put up. What Paul says here is sometimes 
God will send intense suffering into your life to remind you that you don't get to write the script. He writes the script. But when he reminds you, it causes you to stop relying and obsessing over yourself and be filled with fear and worry and anxiety about, am I doing enough? Have I done enough? Am I smart enough? Have I prepared enough? And instead you can say, no, I'm going to rely on the one who raises people from the dead. And as you do that, you learn that the absolute worst things life can throw at you can't really hurt you because they can't separate you from his love. Some of you, you are in a period of intense suffering and you're wondering, how can I be certain that God's going to take this awful stuff in my life and use it for good? And the answer is what we celebrate today. Because on Friday, Jesus, the author of life, was being put to death. Darkness covered the land. Could you imagine being one of the disciples as Jesus hung on the cross? Like, what happens when the author of life dies? Does everything disappear? Does the world go away? I mean, how much anguish watching Jesus suffer. And then three days later, he rises from the grave. And you realize the worst moment in history, which was the execution of God, turned into the greatest moment in history because it was the salvation of us in our sin. God can use whatever you're going through. He will use it. If you are in Christ, he will use it for your good even if you can't imagine how in the moment. Nothing will separate you. In fact, suffering will strengthen you. I want to close with verse 38 where Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. You know, at the very end, he's like, I just want to make sure I include everything. None of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I love the word Paul uses here. Paul doesn't say, I think nothing's going to separate us. He doesn't say, I hope. Fingers crossed. Paul says, I am convinced. I'm convinced the matter's settled. And when I think about the anxiety and fear that I have in life, that I see in the church, when I think about the lack of power in my life and in the church, so much of it, I think, comes because we read that and say, I hope that nothing will separate us. I think, and I really want to believe this, but we're not able to say the matter's settled. I'm convinced. Paul, he was convinced. He had tremendous power, but if you live your life wondering, is God for me? Will sin condemn me? Will something separate me? It's so easy to be fearful and timid and become afraid. But God didn't give us a spirit of fear. He gave us a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. And so if you're here and you're in Christ, relish these truths. Work them into your soul till you're convinced. God is for us. No one can condemn us and nothing shall separate us. If you are here and you are not a Christian, I want to be really clear. These truths are not for you right now. They're, they're offered to you, but they're only secure through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've got questions about that, you've got issues or hang-ups, or maybe you've got some apologetic things like, wait, what about this? Or you just need someone to talk to, you can go out these doors to the right. We have a bunch of pastors available to talk, to pray. If you're here and you're just suffering, and you just need to cry on someone's shoulder. You just need someone to pray for you. We have pastors available for you as well. As we move to communion, 
I pray that as we remember the body of Christ being broken and the blood of Christ being shed on our behalf, I pray as we come to the table, we might feel conviction for sin, remorse, and we can do that and we can confess our sins. But I pray also that as we eat this meal, we, we remember this is a, a simulation. You know, it's a, a foretaste of what God's preparing for us. And I pray that we be filled with joy and remember that as Christians, we're good news people. And this meal is a meal of good news. The way we take communion here is we tear off a piece of bread and we dip it in either the wine or juice, whichever your conscience permits. Let me pray.